Dear God, thank you. Andre's peace, meditation. Oh, it was like we were there in your throne room. You get excited any time any of your children exercises one of the gifts you've loaned to that child. We're on a journey here, wraps it, wrapping it all up next week. So, dear God, let today's be clear in preparation for what you're going to ask us to do next Sabbath. We'll never be the same again after this journey, I'm convinced. May this teaching of Scripture be clear. With the power of Christ's Spirit, we pray in His name. Amen. The hero of our story today is a potential radical. He has yet to make the decision, hence the word potential. We remember him by three demographic markers that describe him. Young, educated, wealthy. Just like you. I'm not rich. No way am I rich. Oh, think again. Let's play that little, the whole world is a village of 100 people game. All right? We'll play it right now. Let's find out the demographic slices you occupy on this planet, even as we speak. The game begins with these words. If we could reduce the world's population to a village of precisely 100 people with all existing human ratios remaining the same, the demographics would look something like this. If the whole world were 100 people, one village, it would look like this. The village would have 60 Asians... If you're from Asia, there you are. 14 Africans, 12 Europeans, 8 Latin Americans, 5 from the U.S. and Canada, 1 from the South Pacific. That's what the village of 100 would look like. What else would the village look like? 51 would be male, 49 female. I always thought it was the other way around, but no, there are more guys than girls on the planet. All right, next. 82 would be non-white, 18 would be white. So now you know that demographic, where you fit in. Next. 67 would be non-Christian. Global religions, one-third of this planet, Christians. You'd be in that one-third slice, wouldn't you? Next, 80 would live in substandard housing. That's not dormitory housing, by the way. That's, that's, that's completely different. Substandard means you're not living in it today, trust me. You're in the top 20% for that one. All right, next, 67 would be unable to read. Wow, if you can read... Top one-third. Keep going, please. Fifty would be malnourished in this village. One would be dying of starvation. In a village of 100, 1% dying of starvation. Next. Thirty-three would be without access to a safe water supply. Not you. Keep going. Thirty-nine would lack access to improved sanitation. If you flushed a toilet this morning, that's not you. Keep going. Twenty-four would not have any electricity at all. Zero, nada, nothing. Seventy-six would have electricity, but most would only use it for light at night. You keep your stuff on all day long, so you're not in that category. Keep going. Seven people would have access to the Internet. You're in the top seven percentile. Look at that. Top seven percent on the planet have access like you do to the Internet. Next. One would have a college education. You're in the top one percentile. Top on this planet. Next, one would have HIV. 1% of the planet dying. AIDS. Next, two would be near birth. That means they're fairly young. One would be near death. So 2% of the planet's right down over here and the other uh, 1% near death. Next, this one's an amazing one. Look at this. Five would control 32% of the entire world's wealth to which all five would be U.S. citizens. Look at that. All five U.S. citizens controlling 32% of 
of the world's wealth. Don't you tell me you're poor. Look at that. Next line, last line. 33 would be receiving and attempting to live on only 3% of the income of the village. One-third of the village would be living on only 3% of the village's income. Are you rich or are you poor? What's the answer now? You are rich. You're going to identify with our hero today. Young, educated, wealthy. We call him the rich, young ruler. Open your Bible, please, to the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 10. While you're doing that, let me put our title slide on the screen. This is the number five. This is part five. It all wraps up next week. The most important piece, next Sabbath. The radicals, this generation, this world, this time. There's a study guide today in the bulletin. Make sure you take it home. It's not to fill in, so just don't throw it away. Just keep it. All the quotations, everything's there. Those of you watching on television, we're delighted to have you. www.pmchurch.tv. Go to that website. You'll have all six parts of the radicals next week. But right now, you can get the study guide. You can keep that study guide for yourself. Let's go. The story begins with the radical query. Mark chapter 10. Open your Bible to Mark chapter 10. You, don't, you, didn't, you didn't bring a Bible? Grab that pew Bible. This story is worth tracking. Mark chapter 10. Incredible narrative here. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. New King James Version is what I have. And that's the pew Bible as well. Let's go. Now, as he, Jesus, was going out on the road, one came Running. Hit the pause button right there. Mark is the only gospel, the only gospel writer to include this detail. This has to be an eyewitness detail. Now, you need to remember this. It's not the gospel according to Mark. Really, the title of Mark's gospel should be the gospel according to Peter. Because Peter told Mark all the Jesus stories and Mark listened to the stories and then wrote them down. And by the way, do you know which Mark this is? This is the John Mark. This is the John Mark that went on that missionary, missionary journey with the intrepid missionary Paul. You remember that? The kid from Jerusalem. He said, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to grow up and be a missionary. Can I go on your trip? And Paul says, yeah, I'll go with this boy. And he goes on the trip. And you remember what happens. An abysmal failure. That's John Mark. So bad, in fact, that when Paul realizes what's going on, he says, adios. Adios, son. I don't need you on my team. You, don't have, you do not have what it takes. And John Mark goes home to his mother in Jerusalem. Which only goes to show, ladies and gentlemen, that this missionary enterprise business, you can fail. You can fail. But the old adage is true. If at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. Because John Mark goes home. An abysmal failure. But guess what? Somebody's watching him when he gets home. Big old burly fisherman named Peter. Locks on to that boy. He says, I know the boy's a failure. I think he'll work. I think he's perfect. Exactly the model the pioneer is seeking. Peter sees the boy and he says, you know what he begins to do? He, begins, he puts his arm around him. He befriends him. He begins to mentor him. He begins to coach him. He begins to nurture him. He begins to teach him. He begins to tell him the Jesus stories. And John Mark, get this, John Mark, the abysmal missionary failure, becomes the great evangelist, writes the very first gospel with the stories of Jesus, because somebody spotted a potential where everybody else, even the great missionary Paul said, ah, he's a failure. Peter says, no, he's not. Take a look at this boy. Calls him my son before he dies. Peter does. Never give up. You put your hand on the missionary plow, don't you ever give up? Of course it's tough. But you'll make it. You'll make it. So this is the same John Mark 
pens this colorful little detail just about this potential radical who comes huffing and puffing up to Jesus. And by the way, what's not to like about that picture? I mean, oh, Master, good teacher. I am so glad I caught up to you. I never thought I could catch you. I wanted to talk to you. I have one question for you, good teacher. What's not to like about that picture? Youthful energy. Matthew says he's young. Youthful eagerness. And he's running after Jesus. This is the, this, this is the eyewitness account. Verse 17, read it again. Now, as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running, all out of breath, knelt before him. Now, that is a posture of incredible, incredible deference. Knelt before him in the dusty road and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? You've got to hand it to this young adult. He has just touched the touchstone of human existence. This is the most important question a human being can ask. What do I have to do to get saved? What do I have to do to have eternal life? Good teacher, tell me. I love that. He's not a fly-by-night. He's serious. Tell me, what do I have to do to be saved? So, verse 18, Jesus said to him. Here goes the dialogue now. Strange beginning. Why do you call me good? Huh? No one is good but one that is God. Why do you call me good? There is no record in rabbinical literature of any rabbi being called good. Not even Nicodemus himself when he comes to Jesus in that midnight clandestine meeting. You remember that? He calls him rabbi. He doesn't say good rabbi. He just says rabbi. In fact, in the Mishnah, it is God himself who is spoken of as, quote, he that is good and bestows good. So Jesus is looking down at this upturned, youthful face. He's looking down at that face and he's saying, hey, boy. You strike me as rather well-educated and well-off. You've obviously thought through the opening. You've planned this. And you're calling me good. Why are you calling me good? Could it be you have a notion that I might be God? See, he lets that question just hang. Why are you calling me good? There's nobody good but God. And he lets it hang, pregnant with the pause. Waiting, will a young man speak up? Will he, will, he speak? will he say anything? He doesn't say a word. He just, face still upturned. Well, now about the question you asked, Jesus says, I have an answer for you. And here it goes. Verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Mark throws that in. None of the other gospel writers do. Honor your father and your mother. What do you mean I know the Ten Commandments? Of course, I grew up in the church. Remember Pathfinders? I earned my busy bee all the way up to Master Guide. I went to an Adventist university. Been there and done that. If you're talking about the Ten Commandments, I've done it, Jesus. That's exactly what he says. Look at verse, uh, verse 20. And he, the young man, answered and said to Jesus, Teacher, by the way, notice he drops the good now. That was a little bit too, uh, too pointed. I don't want to get back into that conversation again. Teacher, all these things... I have kept from my youth. And guess what? He's right. He had. He's just like the young Saul. Remember Paul? Who, who he called when he, was, when he was young. He said, hey, listen, as to, as to righteousness according to the law, I was blameless. I was perfect. The kid thinks he's perfect as well. He's like, every, he's like a whole lot of young who grow up in the Adventist church. Grow up in the bosom of the church. Many of you have. You've got the external conformity down pat. He had mastered that external conformity. But there's a hole in his heart. Something is missing and he knows it's missing, but he's not sure what it is that's missing. 
His heart's destitute. There's a gnawing emptiness deep inside. There's no, there's no abiding love for God. He's been going through the intellectual and behavioral motions, but there's no close, there's no personal, there is no friendship with God. He's not sure what's missing, but he knows it's missing. Jesus knows it's missing. And Jesus says, all right, I know that ache in your heart, and I know from whence it comes. The radical query is now met by the radical command. Watch this. Jesus. Verse 21. Then Jesus. I love this. Then Jesus, looking at him. How does your Bible read? He loved him. He loved him. Mark's the only one to slip this into the narrative. Obviously, another eyewitness detail. Peter told Mark, and Mark wrote it down. Peter said, Mark, you know, I've seen Jesus look into the face of thousands. But when he looked into this young man's upturned face, I'm telling you, Mark, you could see the affection in his eyes. You could see that he was drawn to this youthful potential. And he loved him. I teach a preaching class over here at the seminary. In fact, this semester I begin this next week. And I tell the young preachers there, listen, when you're preaching, lock on to the eyes. Lock on to the eyes. You've got to watch the eyes. Because the eyes tell the story of the heart. Look at the eyes. Watch the eyes. You know, if everybody came to church and said, I want to play the crossword puzzle in the boat in the day, and everybody looked down, the preacher is dead meat. You have to be able to watch what's happening. The eyes are the window to the soul. Jesus looks. And by the way, Mark makes sure that we know he looked first. He looks into the eyes. He sees all of that, all of that ready to go. And it just, his heart, Jesus' heart just went boom, boom toward this kid. Christ's object lessons. I like the way this describes what was going on in the mind of Christ. Isn't there something? Look at this. Put it on the screen for you. Christ's object lessons. When this young ruler... When this, when this young ruler came to Jesus, his sincerity and earnestness won the Savior's heart. Isn't that something? Jesus didn't win the young man's heart. The young man won Jesus' heart. He saw the sincerity. He saw all of this eager, earnest potential. And Jesus is thinking to himself, this, wow, if he could become a radical. Yeah. When this young ruler came to Jesus, his sincerity and earnestness won the Savior's heart. He, Jesus, beholding him, loved him. In this young man, he saw one who might do service as a preacher of righteousness. He would have received this talented and noble youth as readily as he received the poor fisherman who followed him. Had the young man devoted his ability to the work of saving souls, had he become a missionary, he might have become a diligent and successful laborer for Christ. Now look at this. Christ looked upon the young man and longed after his soul. He longed to send him forth. What is the definition of a missionary? One who is sent forth. He longed to send him forth as a messenger, a blessing to the human race. Everything within Jesus' heart is just saying, Whoa! Oh, that we could have him. By the way, whether you're rich or poor, whether you are educated or uneducated, young or old, it doesn't matter to him. He's looking into your eyes right now because he's big on eye contact. He's looking into your eyes and he is longing 
for your heart. He loves you. He looks into your face and He loves you. There's nobody on the planet that can fulfill, can fulfill the destiny that you were born for. You were born for a dream in the heart of God. If you say no, that portion of God's dream will never get fulfilled. Nobody can step into your place. He's looking into your face right now. You're saying, Dwight, I'm not a college, I'm not college age. He's not looking into my face. Oh, my friend, 88, he's looking into your face. He's looking into your face. He needs you. He wants you. He loves you. He's watching your eyes. The eyes of your soul. Here comes the radical command. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. All right? You want, it? You want the answer? You want to be saved? You lack one thing. Just one. One thing you lack, go your way, go home. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. There it is. The radical command right there. David Platt in his New York Times bestseller, right now a bestseller. Radical. Taking back your faith from the American dream. David Platt warns about two equal and opposite errors that can happen when we encounter the story as we just have. Error number one, put it on the screen, we can universalize Christ's command to apply to all his followers today. Okay, everybody, we're going to have an auction tomorrow, bring everything you own, we're going to sell it off. That would be a mistake because the New Testament church didn't do that. Somebody owned real estate, they're in an upper room, they're meeting in somebody's home. They didn't, it was not total liquidation. All right, so number one, we make a mistake. We universalize Christ's command to apply to all of us. But the equal and opposite mistake is also significant. Number two, we can rationalize. We can rationalize Christ's command to apply to none of his followers today. That was just back then. It does not apply to you and me. Whew. Leading the writer Robert H. Gundry to observe, and I thought this was rather pithy. I'll put it on the screen for you. Gundry writing that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the now hold on only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command if he could. If you're saying, wow, oh, I'm so glad to know this is not a universal command for you, my friend, it would be the command that he would give. That's good, isn't it? David Platt writes, look at this. If Mark 10 teaches anything, it teaches us that Jesus does sometimes call people to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. I mean, what are we going to do with Luke chapter 12? I want you to see this with with your own eyes, not on the screen. Uh, Luke 12. So just you're in Mark. Just go over to Luke. Put your little marker here because we'll come right back to uh, wrap it. But go over to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, if you just take a look at verse 22, it's not the line, but just notice it says, He said to His disciples. So you now know that everything from verse 22 on is Jesus speaking to His disciples. He has His own little circle of radicals all around Him. All right? So we know He's speaking to His disciples. Drop down to verse 32, and I love this, by the way. Do not fear. I wish I had a red-letter Bible because this would be bright red. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
Isn't that beautiful, by the way? You can stop right there and you, you, you have a heart full. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. It's God's pleasure. It's your Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. Hey, Jesus, what do I have to do to be saved? You don't have to do anything. He's going to give you the kingdom. You don't earn the kingdom. He's going to give you the kingdom. Isn't that something? Do not fear. Hey, little flock, little flock, don't be afraid. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But keep reading, verse 33. Oh, and by the way, sell what you have and give alms. That would be gifts to the poor. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For Final line, verse 34. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Isn't that amazing? Can you believe it? Christ does not reserve his sell all that you have and give to the poor command only for the rich young ruler. He gives it to, to that circle of disciples that you and I are a part of. If you're a radical, he's talking to you. Which explains, by the way, the radical response of Jesus' disciples on that sunny, just-afternoon moment atop the Sea of Galilee. You remember that? Let's just go back to, to Luke 5, just, just a few pages back. You remember that Jesus comes to Peter and says, Hey, listen, let me get in your boat. I, I can't speak to everybody. This crowd is huge. Pull, pull back, Peter. Get me back into the water here. And then I'll, can you hear me now? And then he preaches. He teaches to them. When he's through teaching. You remember the story? When he's through teaching, he says, Hey, hey Pete, let's go fishing. Peter looks up at Jesus. We've been fishing all night. We haven't caught a thing. But because you want to, we will. All right, throw the net on that side, Peter. Peter throws the net on that side, and what happens? Slimy, silver flashes of light beneath the noonday sun as they pull in a, 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 a hull so heavy. James and John, get over here. It takes two boats to drag that mother load to the beach. Peter now realizes he is in the presence of the divine himself. And Peter says, get away from me. I am a sinner. Jesus says, I have a word for you, Peter. Look at just the tail end of uh, verse 10 here in Luke 5. Tail end. Hey, Peter, Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you're going to be a missionary for me. From now on, you will catch people for me. And now notice, here's what I wanted you to see. Verse 11. So when they, the disciples, had brought their boats to land, they forsook how much? They forsook all and followed him. What Christ commanded to the rich young ruler to do, his relatively poor disciples do without even a command. They just spontaneously do it. They leave everything behind and they follow Jesus. Remember the little widow in the temple? She drops in her ding, ding. Two little mites dropping into the offering plate that day. And Jesus in a stage whisper so that she could hear him. Jesus says to the fellows, he said, hey, listen, look at her. She gave more than all the worshipers today, for they gave out of their abundance, but she has given her all. There it is again. Rich young ruler. Apparently it's not reserved to a rich young ruler. Apparently it's not reserved to the disciples. Apparently it's not reserved to the widows, just as apparently it is applicable to all who would be radical followers of the Christ. Does it mean we all have to liquidate right now? No, it doesn't. But it means we hold whatever we Whatever we have with great lightness and tenderness so that in the moment he needs it, it's gone. I, didn't, I wasn't holding on to it anyway. A missionary named Jason. He lives with his family in a country where it's illegal to spread the gospel. He wrote a letter to David Platt. I want, to, I want you to catch a line or two from the letter. I'll put it on the screen for you. How many people, he asked in this letter, how many people have not believed because they have not heard? What will it take for those people to hear? Have they not heard because there is no one to tell them? 
What can we do in obedience to God to change a world in which there are millions and millions of people who cannot call in the name of the Lord? Most of us, the missionary goes on, most of us would say, well, we know the answer to that question. Many of us would say, hey, we're even doing things to change the situation. But the truth is, and here's what spoke to my heart, but the truth is there will continue to be millions and millions of people who do not hear as long as we continue to use spare time and spare money to reach them. Spare time? Oh, I got a little time. What do you need? I'll give you a few minutes. Spare money? Listen, what do you need? Five, ten bucks? Would that be helpful? Spare time and spare money. Now, notice how the, this, this quotation ends. Those are two radically different questions. What can we spare versus what will it take? Ladies and gentlemen, if we continue to live our lives by what can we spare we will never go home forever and ever. Amen. God is raising up a generation that will no longer ask the question, what can we spare? But a generation that instead asks the question, what will it take? I'll give whatever it takes. There's a world of difference. A universe of difference. Just ask Jesus. We'll end with this. Radical query. Radical command. Now the radical invitation. Go back to verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Radical command. And now here it comes. Radical invitation. And come. And only Mark has this. Only Mark in his account. And come. Come. Take up the cross. I want you to follow me. Radical query, radical command, radical invitation. Come, take up the cross and follow me. Listen, this idea of becoming a radical, did you think it was going to be easy? Did you think it was going to be easy? Forget it. You don't want to give your life to something that's easy anyway, do you? No, you don't. That's why next week, it all comes to next week. Everything next week. And I'm only giving one invitation next week. One invitation. One invitation for you to respond to the call of Christ and enlist as a radical, a missionary. One invitation. But be forewarned. By the way, I hope you come. I hope you bring your friends. I hope you drag your friends here. Because you never know in the presence of the moving of the Spirit what a heart will respond on the spot. You don't need the previous five parts. You just need a heart that hears. Girl, I'm talking about you. That's all you need. But be forewarned, nobody said it was going to be easy. Especially when you consider the appeal in today's blog, written for just this weekend. And I'd like to invite you to pull your worship bulletin out right now. I wrote this blog. I want you to, I don't want to get the words wrong, so I'm going to read it. Pull out your worship bulletin, page two of your worship bulletin. You're watching on television right now or the radio? You can get the blog www.pmchurch.tv. Every week a fresh blog goes on there by the end of the week. This is today's. I want to read this in your hearing. I'd like you to follow along. I'd like the words to sink in. That's why I'm inviting you to read it and not listen to it. Here we go. Like teetering dominoes, the Islamic giants of the Middle East fill our news. Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, Bahrain, Algeria, Morocco, Libya, Iran, will Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Syria, and the smaller nations be exempt? From the sweeping unrest that has already spread across the desert sands of these neighbors? 
Ladies and gentlemen, you can't believe what's going on right now. Regarding this time of immense instability and uncertainty in the Middle East, I pondered these two observations. Let me share these two with you. Number one, clearly this political and social upheaval is being fueled by the young of these Islamic societies. Banded together and spurred on by the social networks, Facebook and Twitter, it is dominantly the young who are the driving force behind the revolutionary upheavals. The YouTube clips, the nightly news coverage, the tweeted messages crisscrossing the region in nanoseconds belong to youthful faces and voices. Now here, I'm wondering, I wonder what would happen would the young of Christianity, let's turn over to page 7, would the young of Christianity, would the young of Adventism, the young of this university, what would happen were they to band together and become an indomitable force for the God of the universe? What will awaken the sleeping giant of the young here in the West? Do you wonder too? My second observation grows out of the memory of how stunningly fast the Iron Curtain of Communism came down in 1989. What the world and even the church had resigned themselves to back then, an unbreachable wall of separation between the East and the West, literally overnight collapsed. And lands forbidden, as it were, to the everlasting gospel were suddenly opened and accessible. And for one brief and shining moment, the hungry masses behind the wall poured into public lecture halls to hear for the first time the everlasting gospel. Could it be that the Middle East itself might yet open similarly? While the social, religious, political dynamics are radically different between Eastern Europe in the 1990s, and the Middle East in the 2010s, nevertheless, the possibility of a similar brief and shining moment of opportunity is just as real, is it not? Who will be ready to respond? Will the church? Will you? I would like to appeal particularly to the young who are reading this blog. Could it be that God will call you, irrespective of your degree or career, he will call you to become a part of His frontline rapid response team in the Middle East one day. The more I read, the more I ponder and pray, the more convicted I am that God has raised up this community of faith to be a connecting bridge with our Muslim brothers and sisters. The fanatical elements of both Islam and Christianity would seek to destroy any divine bridging, but a generation of young radical followers of God in our faith community could be the very catalyst God needs to communicate His end-time appeal to the human race and to His Muslim children the world over. And so I urge you to make this notion of becoming a radical missionary for the kingdom a matter of earnest personal praying. Who knows? But that for such a time as this, God has personally raised you up. Don't miss next Sabbath's concluding part. We are all watching history in the making. God help us, however, to do more than watch. Instead, let us help write the history God has always dreamed could be. The apocalypse describes that dream. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. I say, let's make that history for God. What do you say? Amen. Amen. Why not? Why not? How does the story of the rich young ruler end? Tragically, sadly, unfortunately. One last time I read it to you, verse 21. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He said to him, one thing you lack. Go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. Verse 22. But he, educated, young, 
wealthy demographic slice. But he was sad at this word. And he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. Eugene Peterson renders it this way in his message translation. Take a look at this on the screen. The man, the man's face clouded over. This was the last thing he expected to hear. And he walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. You see, he missed the truth. He didn't see it. You and I, from our vantage point, we see it perfectly. What's the truth he missed? Here it is. He missed the truth that Christ loved him before he ever commanded him. He thought he was just dealing with a, you know, just a bare command. He missed the look in the eyes. He missed the truth that the love of Christ always precedes the command of Christ. The Calvary sacrifice always precedes the missionary's calling. You have the love first. You've got to see that. The love precedes the command. By the way, the word command is too weak a word. It should read this way. The love of Christ always precedes the demand of Christ. He demands it of you. He demands it of you. But the love comes first. Isaac Watts captures this great sequential truth in his majestic hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And it comes as the punchline to the hymn. Let me just read the words with you. Put it on the screen here. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Now here it comes. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Now hold on. Love so amazing, so divine, demands, demands my soul, my life, my all. Ladies and gentlemen, because we have been loved as deeply as Calvary, I ask you, is it not His right to demand our soul, our life, and our all? Doesn't He have the right?